Chapter 16, 36. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers of the flame, and for they are holy, and to scatter the coals of the fire at the distance. And as for the censer of these men who send at the coast cost of their lives, they must be made into hammered sheets of covering in the altar because they presented them before Yahweh and sanctified them. So God now says, take all these censers, hammer them out into sheets of metal, and cover the altar. Now what's going on here? The altar, like in the tabernacle, that you're going to go to and sacrifice your animals on. Well, you're not going to. You're going to sacrifice the animal and give it to the priest, and he's going to put on it. You're going to hammer it out. Well, one of the things that God says is that the fire that came out and consumed them and their own blood has sanctified these censers. Okay, remember the death of somebody atones for sins. So their death has atoned for the sins connected to these censers, and the fire has purified them, sanctified them. So now they have become holy because this was sanctified by the fire of Yahweh that literally came out of him. So these are holy now. You're going to beat them out into sheets and wrap the altar with them and fashion them on there. Now, what's that mean? What was, this rebe- what was at the root of this rebellion? We have the right to be priests and make atonement for sins. Now, every single day that you walk into the tabernacle with your animal sacrifice and you sacrifice it and they hand it to the priest and you watch him put them on the altar, what are you going to see? What's that altar look like now? all those 250 censers. So every single day you make a sacrifice, what are you going to be reminded of? The rebellion. You don't have the right to be a priest. That's humbling. This is what God is saying. This altar, this priesthood, is about you humbling yourselves, confessing your sins, submitting to God, and crying out for his mercy and grace that you don't die because you made a sacrifice for atonement of sins. How dare you come to this altar and think that you have the right to be the priest? That is the complete opposite of what this sacrifice is supposed to be about. And so what God has done is he is forcing them to be reminded every single sacrifice what a sacrifice is truly about. It's check your heart and submit it before God. And if you can't do that, then you shouldn't be here. Only Aaron has the right to be the priest in his line. Does that make sense? There is something to hanging a memorial of rebellion up and before the congregation, so to speak, as a reminder of what it means to humble your heart before Yahweh. Now, I'm not saying God finds something in my... But there is something about why the authors of the Bible keep repeating these stories over and over and over again. In this way, it's their hammered out censors. They keep holding up before... I mean, this is the whole book of Hebrews, practically, is the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness. Verse 41. But the next day, the whole community of the Israelites murmured against Yahweh's people... And when the community assembled against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahweh appeared. Then Moses and Aaron stood before the tent of meeting. The people had the audacity to say, You killed them! How, you evil people, you killed these people! How could you do that? But it was so clear that, like, do they honestly think this fire came out of Moses' body? And if it did come out of Moses' body, they should be a lot more scared. 
than to point the finger at him. How is it that this is clearly a just judgment from God and they completely miss that and turn on humans and say, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, your fault. And the people rebel against God. So Yahweh, verse 44, said to Moses, get away from this community so that I can consume them in an instant. But they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground. And then Moses said to Aaron, take this censer, put burning coals from the altar in it and place incense on it and go quickly into the assembly and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out before Yahweh and the plague has begun. So Aaron did as Moses commanded and ran into the middle of the assembly where the plague was just beginning among the people. So he placed incense in the coals and made atonement for the people. And he stood before the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now 14,700 people died in the plague in addition to those who died in the event of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meaning, and the plague was stopped. This is huge. So God is angry at the people that they would actually amen this rebellion and act like Moses' fault. So he sends a plague among them. Now what is the immediate response of Moses and Aaron? Try to stop it. They throw themselves on the floor before God, and they begin to worship him. They begin to intercede on behalf of the people. They begin to cry out with them. And then Moses says, get a censer, fill it with the coals of the altar, and grab it, and go out into the camp after you've made atonement for sins, and stand right in front of the plague, and swing that smoke, and become a shield for the plague. You know how powerful that image is? This is like a Superman act. (laughs) There is somebody in danger somewhere else, and he is running as fast as he can to the altar, He is getting coals from the altar, filling the incense, making a sacrifice. He is running as fast as he can as he swings this thing. And like a shield, he stands in front of the plague that's coming on the people behind him. And with the incense and the atonement, he stops the plague. Now, not that he's stopping the plague, but his sacrifice, his repentance, his atonement appeases God and stops the plague. Who did these people just rebel against? Moses and Aaron. Who did they want to seize power from? Moses and Aaron. Who did they just accuse of killing all the leaders? Moses and Aaron. Who stood in front of the people like a shield, in front of the plague, and made sacrifices and risked his own life to stop the plague for the sake of the people? Aaron and Moses. That's love. That's sacrifice. You and I would be like, they deserve it. You see the contrast here? These people want power. The priesthood for them is about power. But over and over again, Moses keeps saying, I don't want to do this job anymore. It's too hard. He's not trying to seize power. Yet, what does he constantly do? Sacrifice himself, humble himself, put up with their complainings, and he throws himself on the grenade, so to speak, for these people over and over and over again. That's what it means to be a priest. And what God has intentionally set up is, why has God chosen Moses and Aaron? Because they get what true leadership looks like. And we talked about this last week, but this point is getting reemphasized. You want to know what true leadership looks what true authority means, it means you throw yourself on the grenade for a bunch of people who threw it at you. And you do it for them. Because they're too stupid to realize that the grenade they just threw is going to kill them too. And you throw yourself on it, 
and you're willing to take it. Because what does it mean to be a leader? It means you die first. That's what true leadership means. And it means no matter how long they spit in your face, no matter how much they falsely accuse them, you can't help but want to still love them and you can't help but want to still save them. And this is powerful. You're going to see that Jeremiah is like the greatest example. Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Isaiah together. Jeremiah says, I can't do this anymore, God. My own people, my own family are trying to assassinate me. I've told them that you said we should have surrendered to the Babylonians and they're calling me a traitor. Can you imagine what it'd be like for an American to stand up in America and say, just give in to the terrorists, let them come over, take them over. It's God's will for us. Oh my gosh, you would be thrown to the wolves. And yet that's what Jeremiah is saying. It's God's will that the Babylonians are going to take you. Don't even fight them. God said don't even fight. Just let them come over and roll over you and take you down. That's God's will for you. And his own family tried to assassinate and kill him multiple times. And Jeremiah says, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. But then he says, like a paragraph later, but I tried to shut up my mouth and I can't because the word of God is so welling up in me that I can't help but preach the word to these people that I can't help but stop loving or not stop loving. And he goes on and he goes on. And he goes on and he does it because there's something in him that's from God that can't help but love these people that are trying to kill him. And you see that with Isaiah. Isaiah says, here I'll go, send me. And God, he says, what should I tell the people? God says, tell them they're all going to die, that I'm bringing the worst judgment they could ever imagine on them. And Isaiah says, for how long? Forever, because they're never going to listen to you. Sign me up. <laughs> kind of regret that, like, here am I. <laughs> Yet he does it because he loves God and he loves the people. That's leadership. That's leadership. And that's why Moses is considered one of the greatest prophets that's ever lived, other than Jesus Christ. The only one that surpasses him is the one that literally dies for you all. That's what God is trying to communicate. Do you get it or do you not? Are you the people in the wilderness? Or are you like Moses and Aaron? Are Moses and Aaron perfect? No, they've screwed up big time too. But even though they've screwed up, they get it. But the people, they don't get it. And that's what makes the rebellion so much worse. And I know a lot of ways we do get it, but I know there's still some areas in all of our life where we don't get it. How, how is it that we've been so able to get it in this area and surrender to God, but then this other area over here, we're still like... <laughs> That's what God is calling you to. Chapter 17, verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and receive from them a staff from each tribe, one from every tribal leader. Twelve staffs. You must write each man's name on the staff, and you must write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. One for one staff is for the head of every tribe. You must place them in the tent of meaning before the Ark of the Covenant, where I met with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose will blossom. So I will rid myself of the complaints of the Israelites, which they murmur against you. So God says, okay, it's so obvious that people are not getting this message. We're going to do one final thing. We're going to take everybody's staff and mark them. Every tribe present a staff, 13 tribes, 13 staffs in the middle. 
And God is going. Now remember, what is this staff a symbol of? It's authority, your headship, your ruling. This is their authority. This is their power. So they're there to take the ultimate symbol of authority and power and put it in the center. And everybody is there equally. And God says, I'm going to mark the staff that I've chosen as my authority for the priesthood. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and each of their leaders gave him a staff for one, each, for one of the each leaders, according to their tribes, twelve staffs, and the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. Then Moses placed the staffs before Yahweh in the tent of testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and brought forth buds and produced blossoms and yielded almonds. So Moses brought out of all the staffs before Yahweh to all the Israelites, and they looked at them, and each man took his staff. Now you have to understand what he's doing here. He took this staff, and what does begin to blossom? Almonds. Now, anybody remember the significance of that? What else has almonds on it connected to the tabernacle? The lampstand. Because the lampstand is the tree of life from the garden. The lampstand is the tree of life from the garden. So God took the lampstand with seven branches, which represents the seven days of the week, seven days of creation completion, and he told them to make it look like a tree. And he had them carve almond buds and almonds into the metal. And the idea is that this is the tree of life, symbolically speaking. Now what's just cool here is that this is the light of God. Remember the light of God in creation is what brought everything into existence. And the tree of life is what gave them life. And so these two things, they were to take this lampstand and they were to face the lampstand towards the table of showbread so the light would shine on the table of showbread, which was the fruit of the lampstand. So these two things together represent the tree of life that produced the fruit of life for the 12 tribes. So what God is doing is he's making Aaron's staff look like the tree of life. Because remember that Adam and Eve were priests in the Garden of Eden. And they're responsible for guarding and keeping the garden, which are the words used of the priests in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. So who he's saying is, who have I picked to keep and guard the garden and the tree of life, which is the tabernacle? Aaron, because his staff is the one that looks like the tree of life. The other thing is the almonds were the symbol of life. Because the almond tree was the first tree to bud and blossom every year in Israel. Not in the entire world, but just in that region. So it was a symbol of new life. Now, here's what's even cooler. What does this stick come from? A tree. And if you have a stick now from a tree, and it's a staff, you call that stick what? It's no longer connected to the tree anymore. It's dead. But if it begins to blossom again and grow flowers, what would you call it? Alive. Alive. So what has God just done to the stick? He's resurrected it. So what is the sign of the true high priest? Resurrection. And one day, Jesus is going to come along and claim to be the high priest And how is he going to prove to the people that he has the right to be the true high priest? He's going to die and be resurrected. 
At the same time, we just got done with a story about Aaron putting himself in front of the plague of God's judgment in order to make atonement for the people so that they may live. And then his staff raises. We have had a typology of Jesus here because we have a man who's standing in front of the judgment of God, taking the judgment of God with the atonement that he made for sins. And then his staff gets resurrected into the tree of life. And what God is saying here is, when you see that again, that's the high priest. And you will see that again on a much bigger level with Jesus Christ. This is all foreshadowing Christ. And this is why this is so important, because this is what Paul means, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are Korah. You and I are the people. And Jesus is Aaron. But he is way more than Aaron. In a way that in some ways he fulfills Aaron, but in other ways he's so beyond Aaron that he doesn't even look like Aaron anymore. Does this make sense? And this is what God is doing. He's pointing you towards something bigger and better. And the more and more you understand these, this is why Jesus says, if you really knew the Father, you would, you would know me. If you were really paying attention to these stories, no, you couldn't get it because you're not Christians with hindsight saying, oh my gosh, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. But you would be like, that's awfully familiar. That's awfully familiar. That's awfully familiar. And eventually somebody's going to realize, wow, that's all coming from the Bible. And this is what God is communicating. This is what true priesthood looks like. This is what true priesthood looks like. Any questions? Comments? Chapter 17, verse 10. Yahweh said to Moses, Bring Aaron's staff back before him to the testimony, preserved for a sign to the rebels, so that you may bring their murmurings to an end before me, and they will not die. So Moses did as Yahweh commanded, and this is what he did. The Israelites said to Moses, We are bound to die. We perish, we perish, we all perish. Anyone who even comes close to the tabernacle of Yahweh will die, and are we all going to die? So, Basically, they get it. We so don't deserve to be anywhere close to this tabernacle. We don't deserve to be anywhere this. How are we even alive? How are we even alive? And that is the proper response to God. How, how am I evil, even able to be here? How is it that I'm even loved by God? How is it that he, I even deserve this sacrifice? Why is it that he even loves me? That is the person who truly submits themselves before God. So after a rebellion, what do you get? More laws. <laughs> this time the laws are all about the priesthood. And what God is going to do is emphasize what it really truly means to be a priest and what you have to go through. Yahweh responded by reemphasizing the priestly roles and duties of the nations. This section is very repetitious of what we've already gone through in Leviticus. So once again, we're going to go through these pretty quickly, mostly because they're really, really repetitious. So the first thing he does is he goes through the responsibilities of the priests, and he reminds them of all the things that they're supposed to do in the tabernacle, reminds them of the kind of lifestyle they're supposed to live, and what he's reemphasizing here is you people need to be reminded of how, how much of a burden it is to be a priest responsibilities of being a priest, the ordeal that they have to go to, the extra level of holiness they have to live. Because really the idea is, you really want to be a priest? 
Well, then one, you have to be willing to do what Aaron is doing, despite how much you rebel against him. Two, you have to live to a much higher standard of holiness than anybody else has to. And if you don't do that, remember, God's not afraid to strike the priest down dead either. Abinadad and Abihu. And so what he's saying is, this is what it means to be a priest. This is a light thing that I pass out. This isn't that I got into power and then I get my old buddies that I grew up with and I give them really powerful positions and the, the cabinet. This is something where, like, this is more about sacrificing and hard work than it is about power. Right? Even with the presidency, like, my goodness, I would never want to be president just for, like, all the... Can you imagine having to make the decisions that they have to make all the time on a daily basis, the stress? I mean, whatever you think about Obama, that guy aged a lot in four years. That's a lot of stress. I wouldn't wish the presidency on my enemy. That's... I just think, like, how in the, this, the, the stress and the difficulties and the moral conundrums and the gray areas on everything, like, this is what it really truly means to be a leader. There, there's more sacrifice and responsibility than burden than wealth. If you want the wealth and the pleasure, go be a celebrity. No responsibility and tons of privileges. But for them, this is huge. And this is what God is emphasizing. In chapter 18, verses 8 through the rest of the chapter, he emphasizes the, the portions of the priests. And he reminds them, one, that part of being a priest is trusting God will take care of you. Okay, he reminds them that, look, the priests don't have land of their own. The priests don't get paid. They get paid by your sacrifices, which means the only time that they get paid is when you feel really guilty. <laughs> the more guilty you feel, the more that they get which means they're completely dependent upon God taking care of them. And so what God is doing is two things here. He's showing them, one, you, this is a huge trust factor. You really have to depend upon God to take care of you if you're going to be a priest. If you think this is about power and yachts and big mansions, then it's not because you don't get to own anything. God gives you this stuff. But the second thing he's emphasizing is, but God is faithful to reward them. God is faithful to take care of them. And he will make sure that he is taken care of. This is what it means to truly be a priest. And it's very easy to see the laws. And that's what we went through in Leviticus. And that's why here it's important to see the point of these laws. And the point is that this is what it truly means to be a priest. And then you go through the duties of the Levites. It makes it clear that the Levites also have responsibilities. And he emphasizes to people like Korah, your job is to serve the Levites or the priest. And you have an important role too. And listen, without the Levites, the priests can't do what they're supposed to do. It's like without the people who work behind the scenes on the stage, yeah, they're now in front getting all the glory and the spotlight, but without them, that, those people on the stage would never get the spotlight. And so your role is just as crucial to make sure this all happens because ultimately in the end, what is the point of being the priest? The atonement of sin. It has never been about power. It's never been about privilege. It's been about atonement for the sins of the people. So that brings us to chapter 19. In chapter 19, God gives instructions for the red heifer. The red heifer is a female cow. You have to understand something. This is just a little side note. This is a very important thing because the red heifer, when you go back in Leviticus, the red heifer is the cow that you sacrifice 
and then you take the ashes and you mix it with water and incense and oil and that kind of stuff. And it's what you use to sprinkle on everything in the tabernacle to purify the tabernacle so that the tabernacle can be used for everything else. And without a red heifer sacrifice, the tabernacle cannot be purified. And anytime there's sin on a major level, the red heifer has to be sacrificed and purified. The red heifer is so rare that we actually don't have one anymore. You know that the Jews actually have a warehouse in Indiana with everything that they need to build the temple when that Dome of the Rock is gone. They're looking forward to the day the Dome of the Rock is gone, and there's a warehouse in Indiana that has like all the everything, everything but the stone, but like all the art, all the wood they need, all the gold they need, everything. It's all just there, and they can have it shipped over to Israel like within a week. And they can rebuild this tower. The whole idea is if you have everything right, you can just build that temple before anything comes in. And the one thing that they don't have yet is the red heifer. That's incredibly crucial because that temple is completely useless without the red heifer. And they're literally trying to genetically engineer a red heifer, and they have not succeeded. I know there's kind of a side note that's kind of random, but at the same time, it's showing this is how important the red heifer is. This is how important the red heifer is because it's the only thing that allows the tabernacle to be viable. And what God is emphasizing is once again, this is about cleanliness. This is about atonement for sins. This is about coming into the presence of God. And then he goes through purification. And over and over again, he keeps reminding him. Notice that every time God gives law, somewhere in there, he reminds them of purifications. Because the most important thing in your life as a believer is purification. Purification. Now Christ has ultimately purified you of your sins so that therefore no one is condemned. There's no more condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. But there's another sense where you daily need to become before God and constantly purify yourself through prayer and repentance and confession. And that's what God is reminding him. And he keeps taking them back to Leviticus Because once again, they're not getting it. They're not getting it. And then when you first read Leviticus, in the beginning of Numbers, you're like, yes, they did everything according to what Yahweh commanded them. Several times it says that. The Day of Atonement was awesome. They did exactly the way they're supposed to. And you think, finally, they've gotten it. And the minute they step out into the real world, it's like all those lessons go out their head. It's like what James says, that the fool is the one who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. So is the man who comes to the word of God and doesn't do what it says. And here's the question is, you can amen and feel all warm and fuzzy inside all you want when you listen to those pastors and have your worship services and you're singing and praising God. And the question is, when you walk out of the church that week, are you different? See, in America, we're really good about we're really good about this dichotomy. Dichotomy. We're really good at thinking my spiritual life is what happens in this building and my work life is what happens in this building and my family life is what happens in this building and they don't touch. Because somehow we've bought into this idea of separation of everything. The separation of church and state, the separation of church and my work life, the separation of... And spirituality in America is just something that I think and I worship and I read but we don't really think about how Christianity really truly shapes who I vote for, how I talk, the way I interact with people at work. And I'm not saying nobody here does or you never do it, 
But we're all guilty of it because, go read Total Truth. <laughs> um, because this is a result of Plato, where Plato taught us that there's two separate worlds and the two don't mix. And that's been passed down to us in the American way of thinking. And, and what we don't get is like, this shapes everything. And, and it's, in some ways, it's not that you're intentionally saying, that's church and this is my life. You just can't help it because it's been bred into you as an American. It's the way we all think. And so this is what God is trying to remind them of is, you seriously are going to come to the Day of Atonement. You're just going to sing and praise your heart out to God. You're going to celebrate and amen this purification of the tabernacle. You're going to celebrate the fact that Yahweh is with you. And then you turn around and you walk out into the world and you immediately start accusing God. And you question him. And you rebel against his leadership. And, the, and what you're doing here is not connecting to the way that you live. And if you don't pay attention to the structure of Leviticus, Leviticus was about coming into the tabernacle to be purified so you could go out into the world and live purified. But they haven't gotten that. For them, they go into the tabernacle and do their thing, and then they go out in the world and do their thing. And that's what God is trying to emphasize in chapter 19. Is that this is about being pure so that you can become clean. It doesn't do you any good to take a shower and then immediately jump into the mud. It's like living in Florida. It's completely pointless to take a shower because you walk outside and you're sweating. Okay? It feels so defeated. And that's what God is trying to communicate here. It's about being pure. This isn't ritual. This is not what you do to feel good. This is what you do to live and to be right with God. Any questions? Comments? Comments?